Well, a good Friday morning to you, and thanks for joining us on Real Talk. I'm Ryan Jesperson. Uh, here we go, kicking off what is our day five, the final broadcast day of our first week here on the air, so to speak, streaming live on YouTube, coming to you live on the audio streaming platform Mixler. And of course, after pushing out our first week's worth of daily podcasts, the podcast that right now is ranked number four in Canada, period, thanks to you. We're so excited about how this week has gone, and we're very much excited about today's broadcast. Coming up in just a moment, we're going to check in with independent Alberta Senator Paula Simons. We also today roll out our very first Real Talk Roundtable. We'll be checking in with three different players in Alberta's independent media scene. I'm looking forward to their takes on some of the items we see in the news. Plus, we'll pick their brains on what makes them tick? What drives them? How are they making their business model work? And what does media look like in three or five or ten years from now? Plus, the debut of Trash Talk, brought to you by Local Waste. We've been receiving your emails, your hot takes all week long. We've been telling you that if you have something you need to get off your chest, Trash Talk is where you do it. That's what we'll use to wrap up today's broadcast. That'll be coming up right around 10 o'clock. First, before we officially kick off the show, we wanted to say thank you to our friends this morning at Bitcoin Solutions, the presenting sponsor of Real Talk here. Bitcoin Solutions, you know, is the fastest and safest way to sell Bitcoin. A lot of people are learning more about cryptocurrency right now, maybe viewing it differently than they did even a couple of months ago as more and more of the mainstream big investment houses start to take a serious look at it as well. Uh, the Bitcoin ATMs that Bitcoin Solutions owns and operates, you can find them in eight of the 10 Remedy Cafe locations, including Garneau and 124th Street. If you're looking to buy or sell Bitcoin, these are the guys to go through. If you want to link to their website, just go check out the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. All right, Sam, let's roll. Real Talk starts now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Well, as mentioned, we'll begin our broadcast today uh, with Alberta Senator Paula Simons in just a moment. Before we go to the senator, though... I want to I want to put something in front of you, our friends, especially if you're watching right now. I know some of you have told us that you you, you stream our YouTube link in, in your family room or even in the little screen on the wall in your kitchen. But you're getting up to your morning routine right now. You're pouring your coffee. You're making your way around the house. If you can hear me, but you're not watching me right now, I want you to come take a look at this. This is absolutely incredible. Sam Hester is an artist out of Calgary. Sam heard our conversation with Dr. Darren Markland the other day and decided to put it basically to pen check this out this is an absolutely incredible work of art look at this she uh, sam went ahead and quoted dr markland in many of the different things he talked to us about contact tracing and, and with the healthcare system being strained and the science behind vaccines pulled these quotes That'll be a phrase familiar to those of you that have worked in newspaper, those of you that are familiar with the industry, a poll quote, something that resonated with you that gets blown up in text. Look at this by artist Sam Hester. This is absolutely blowing our minds this morning. We are just so grateful. And I'm trying to, I mean, I'm trying to find a way that maybe we can get Sam Hester to do some more illustration 
on some of the subject matter we cover. No, no, I want this is on a this, T-shirt. Is this not insane? It's so like, cool. Like in the best possible. Look at this. I think we may have found our next real talk hire, assuming that Sam Hester wants to join the team. I don't know, Sam Brooks. We'll have to take a look at that. Uh, let's get into our uh, first interview this morning. We're very grateful that she's been able to make time for us. Obviously, the work doesn't stop for Canada's senators, despite the fact that many of them are meeting over Zoom uh, in the same way that I'm greeting her this morning. Alberta's independent senator, a former journalist and columnist herself, Paula Simon. Senator, welcome to Real Talk, and thanks for making time for us today. I'm very excited because I've been listening all week and thinking, oh, look, this is where the cool kids are. The cool kids are hanging out with Ryan. Yeah, that's right. I wanted to be cool. Thank you very much uh, for letting letting me indulge that fantasy. Oh, you got it, Senator. Well, we we welcomed ourselves to 2020, and here we are streaming online, uh, bringing people the same talk that's been so important to them for for such a long time, for many decades, but on a new platform, and we couldn't be more excited. I saw that you tweeted about Sam Hester's illustration earlier this morning as well, so I know you've seen it. Isn't that remarkable? Yeah, it was just remarkable because the degree of detail, and yet it still works as a as a visual statement, as a piece of art. Uh, I mean, I, I I I'm a writer. I work with words, but I've never seen anything quite like that. It's just it's just stunning, and, and sort of that it happened in real time because that interview was just a couple of days ago. Uh, to see that degree of fine detail capturing. Uh, that amazing interview, I was I was just blown away. I'm going to have to, I think I'm going to have to close this window down on my laptop or I'm just going to be staring at it all morning and, and be distracted, but want to be able to pay close attention to what guests like yourself are, are bringing to the mix this morning. Can, can you give us a sense, Senator, of what, of what your last eight months or so have looked like and what the reality is right now for Canada's senators? The last eight months have been very bizarre for the Senate. I mean, I remember exactly where I was you know, like I was I was at the airport in Ottawa on March 13th when we suddenly realized that everything had changed and the world had moved beneath our feet. And for the next eight months, um, at first, only senators who lived within driving distance of Ottawa were asked to come to the Senate because they didn't want people flying or taking public transit. And so that was very frustrating for me because I could not be there. And, you know, I could watch it on on the live stream, but I couldn't really participate except, you know, I, I would send questions that I, that I wish to have asked to my colleagues and my colleagues were very good about uh, trying to, to uh, uh, let me ask my questions through them. Uh, then it became possible for us to go. And I did go to Ottawa for a time, uh, but it was, it, it was an uncomfortable feeling because the Senate has no masking rule about which I have a lot of feelings. Uh, but just the flying back and forth was stressful. And so I was really, really grateful uh, when the senators agreed to a compromise that allows us who, those of us who do not live conveniently distant to Ottawa to participate online. I mean, that's especially important for my colleagues who come from provinces and territories that have strict quarantine rules, but it's important for those of us from Alberta and British Columbia and Saskatchewan too. So I'm, I'm profoundly grateful that we're able to do that, that we have the technology that I can participate. But in the meantime, I have really been trying to do a lot of outreach in Alberta, speaking to mayors all across the province, speaking to university presidents and, and college presidents, speaking to uh, people from the various airport authorities, uh, speaking to all kinds of I mean, the word lobbyist seems kind of loaded, but speaking to all kinds of lobbyists and special interest groups and not so special interest groups and just trying to get a sense of where COVID was battering people, where they needed help, how I could help to shape 
in a small way federal policy to respond to those concerns. So, I mean, I've kept myself busy, but for lots of senators who frankly are in the Senate because they're type A driven workaholics, there's been a lot of frustration. I think that we haven't felt able to do more. I want to ask you about, uh, I mean, I'm scribbling down here as you're talking, your conversations with mayors and and post-secondary administrators, you know, presidents at universities. I want to pick your brain on airports, Uh, but I've got a a, a nationally recognized award-winning former journalist columnist with me. And and I don't know if you're ever a a former journalist, because I think probably your mind continues to work that way post-retirement or or post-next stage in your career. The story leading the headlines this week, uh, which is really saying something, at least yesterday, uh, involves leaked audio, uh, a story that was broken yesterday by Jenny Russell and Charles Rusnell at the CBC uh, that essentially uh, alleges that, uh, you know, due to secret recording uh, of meetings of the Emergency Operations Center, a team, uh, a team of public servants that were tasked with coordinating the province's response to, to COVID-19 maybe uh, weren't seeing eye to eye with the government. The allegation essentially is that the Minister of Health and the Premier are not listening to the advice of medical professionals, including Dr. Dina Hinshaw, who yesterday afternoon said she was profoundly disappointed that somebody leaked those secret recordings. We've been hearing a, a ton of different opinions on whether or not this is kosher or not, on on whether or not it, it's cool for journalists to push out scoops like this. I have my own thoughts on this, and uh, we're going to be talking about this over the next couple of days, but I'm especially curious for your take. I don't know how deep you'll want to wade into the actual politics of this, uh, Senator Simons, but with regards to the leak itself, the audio recording, the diversion away from the official whistleblower process What are you making of this story? All right, so I'm going to choose my words carefully here because I am a senator. It is my job to pay attention to what the federal government is doing. It is not my job to backseat drive provincial government policy. Um, You know, I I literally get paid to give critiques of federal government policy. It is not my job to critique provincial government policy. So I, I don't want to be drawn into that. But as for a discussion of sort of the journalistic um, conundrum here, I mean, I can tell you that having been a journalist and an investigative reporter for almost 30 years of my life, journalists get leaked stuff all the time. And oftentimes the person who's doing the leaking you know, they have their own motivations for whatever that is. I had some great scoops in my career being leaked things from people who probably had their own agendas. But when you get the information, it's not your job always to analyze the motives or the internal office politics that that drove the leak to your desk. It's your job to make sure the information is accurate and true. So, I mean, I... I you know, I, I worked with Charles Rusnell, who was one of the two reporters on this story for, you know, for years when we worked together at the Edmonton Journal. Uh, I mean, Chuck is one of the best investigative journalists in the country. He and his partner, Jenny Russell, do amazing uh, exposés and have always gone after governments without fear or favor. I mean, I, I don't think you could put an ideological uh, label on on Charles Rusnell. Once he gets a, the bit between his teeth, he just goes uh, without without worrying about um ideology that's just but let not me ask, the way he works. but senator i don't think so, any i don't think anybody is uh, or at least i haven't seen and i and i'm not sure it would make sense for anybody to pile on the journalists 
on the investigative reporters. That doesn't make sense. Like you said, if there's verified information uh, that that's quite frankly sensational, uh, that's remarkable, that sheds light into a situation of public interest, of course, the journalist will take it on. Uh, what about the leaker? What about the person recording the audio and releasing it? Your take on that? Well, this is this is the tricky thing, because now that I'm on the other side of the fence in government, I mean, I'm, I'm not actually in government. That's not exactly how the Senate works. But now that I'm sort of playing slightly for the other team, when civil servants are having a discussion about policy options, I think they need to feel safe that that they can blue sky things, that they can debate things, that that stays within the walls of the room that they're in. Because if you think about about the you know the emergency ops center, I mean this was this was the center point when Alberta had its response to the floods, when Alberta had its response to the Fort McMurray wildfires. I mean the last time I was in that building was during the Fort McMurray wildfires when we were covering that story. So you know within those walls, you want the people who are giving you advice to feel comfortable that if they suggest something and it you know, and you go no nah, that's a stupid idea that they're not going to be publicly embarrassed afterwards. You know those those conversations have to be way off the record. So I can understand why people who were in the room, uh, who thought that their conversations were confidential, would feel really blindsided when that information becomes public. You know, and then you get, you get into it, then a different conversation. How essential is it that the public know this information? How essential is it that we know that there are divisions between uh, what the politicians want and what the advisors are advising. You know, I, I, I think we can have a philosophical conversation and, and a really good and important one about at what point um, in a public health crisis where people's lives are on the line, uh, people have to say, well, I'm going to put protocols and, and traditions aside and I'm, I'm going to go public. But at the same time, I really feel that if you want your public servants to feel that they can brainstorm freely, the idea that that information might might get out is really inhibiting to the kind of full and vigorous debate you need people to have in the middle of a crisis and know that they're not going to be called out for it six months afterwards. This is uh, an interesting question, and we appreciate uh, the, the YouTube, uh, what we've seen, the, the commentary on our YouTube uh, thread through the shows is, is remarkable. And and there's full-blown conversations and debates happening with people that are tuned in on YouTube, and we absolutely love it. Uh, Blaine LaPerriere is listening in or watching this morning, I should say. Uh, in the conversation of social media, Senator, I think you were I, – I would say you broke the mold uh, when, when you, uh, of course, made that transition into – uh, your new career as a Canadian senator and the transparency that you provided the commentary, especially with your background uh, in journalism, uh, the, the the social media reporting, the storytelling that you've done and continue to do have, have quite frankly, has made the Senate much more accessible to many people and much more interesting uh, to many people than it ever was before. Blaine is wondering, did you experience any pushback uh, from your Senate colleagues when you began live tweeting the sittings? Uh, Blaine says, I found it to be exceptionally transparent and very welcomed. 
you know, I kept waiting for the pushback. I kept waiting for, you know, someone in, in, in the, in the chamber operations team, you know, one of the, one of the clerks or the speaker to say, Hey, you, you can't, you can't live tweet from in here. Uh, and the day I started doing it, which was almost exactly two years ago, it was during the emergency debate on the, uh, on the post, on the postal strike, when people were discussing whether or not the federal government should order postal workers to end their rotating strikes. You might remember that was, you know, two years ago at around this time. And, uh, I started live tweeting because there was very little media coverage. It was the weekend and it was an, it was an, an unexpected emergency debate. We were all called back to the Senate for, for the weekend. And I thought, this is really interesting. And people ought to know what's going on in here. And at that point, we weren't being live streamed on, on video the way we are now. And I just sort of, you know, became like a circus horse that hears the music. And I thought, well, I, I better report what's going on in here because I'm a reporter. Uh, and I waited for the pushback and it hasn't ever really come. Now, you know, live tweeting an event like that as a politician sitting in the chamber is a bit like walking on a tightrope without a net. And it, I, I certainly live in fear of the day that I tweet the wrong thing. Uh, I've been given a lot of rope with which to hang myself. And so, you know, it would probably be safer for my political career if I stopped doing that. And, and I don't live tweet everything that goes on in the Senate. A lot of it is less exciting than that particular debate had been. But I do think it's really important. There's so much cynicism about the Senate and so much, under, so much misunderstanding about the Senate's role. I do think it serves a valuable public purpose for people to understand what the Senate does. And if you still think the Senate, you know, if you're still opposed to the Senate and, and the work of senators, then fine. But at least you ought to know what it is before you make up your mind about it. Uh, it's a kind of a novel concept, actually, that, that people would uh, understand the issue that they have strong opinions on. Uh, Paula, you're really you're, you're trying to you're trying to reinvent the wheel there when it comes to public. Commentary. I guess I. I yeah, perhaps, perhaps I'm a little bit, you know, my, I'm a little ambitious there, but yeah. Who get what? What do you get piled on for more? Be, being an, an elitist, liberal, left-leaning member of the mainstream media elite, or uh, being an entitled, lazy, there for life, mailed it in, red chamber Senate uh, senator? What, what what do you get more piled on for by the social media trolls? Well, you know, people people think senators are appointed for life. That hasn't been the case since Diefenbaker. It's been a long time since senators have had mandatory retirement age at seventy five, uh, <laughs> but people still believe it's for life, which which is which is not the case. You know, it's a funny thing when people used to call me an elitist when I worked for the Edmonton Journal. I used to laugh and laugh and laugh, and I would think, ah, have you seen what journalists get paid? Um, I'm pretty sure that. The, the people who are piling on me for being elitist are all making more money than I am. And I was this horrible, sick feeling in the pit of my stomach the first time somebody called me a member of the elite after I joined the Senate. I was like, oh, 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 nuts. I guess, I guess now I am. It's, it, it's a very peculiar thing. You know, I've also had people piling on uh, saying, oh, you know, well, you have like this, this, this big salary and this guaranteed job security. I spent 30 years as a working journalist. I've never had job security until now. And it's 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 difficult to sort of wrap my my head around the change because sometimes I want to get all prickly and defend myself when people say those things. And then I'm like, oh, yes, actually, I have been given this remarkable opportunity and this and, and this remarkable status with which I'm not really wholly comfortable. I think 
I think for those of us in Western Canada, for those of us in, in Alberta and in Edmonton, the idea of class and hierarchy is really foreign to the consciousness of this place. I mean, one of the things I love most about Edmonton is that nobody can pull rank on anybody else. Um, this is a place where you're, you're judged by what you do and not by who your grandparents were. And so it is a bit of a culture shock to arrive in Ottawa, which is a much more hierarchical place, which is a place where suddenly I showed up at the Senate and people opened doors for me. And I used to laugh as a journalist, nobody opens the door for you. They shut the door in your face. And so it's a really, it's a really weird thing. I was, I was rewatching the other day, um, sort of, you know, for my pandemic solace, um, little bits of Downton Abbey, some of my favorite episodes. And I thought, yeah, now I know how it feels to be, you know, Tom Branson, who goes from being the chauffeur eating in the basement to suddenly eating in the dining room. And I'm always worried that I'm, you know, that I'm not doing it right, that I'm, you know, that I'm such a, like, a, like a Clydesdale horse clomping around, uh, stepping on protocol and etiquette everywhere I go in Ottawa. I, I can tell you that I do understand the reference very clearly. That's uh, <clears throat> that's one of the shows that I obsessed over, uh, Downton Abbey. We're talking to Senator Paula Simons. We're going to get to the actual subject matter that we intended to talk to the senator about in just a moment, about 20 minutes into our interview. But first, I want to let you know about our relationship with Clean Air Club. Uh, you can check out what they do at cleanairclub.ca. We've entrusted them with helping us make sure that our studio airspace is as clean and, well, as purified as possible, most especially these days we're paying way more attention to that, aren't they? Uh, aren't we, I should say. They're a local business serving the Edmonton region, and they're really focusing, they're asking you to focus on your furnace filters. It's one of those things you might put out of your mind, but this time of year, a great time of year to change it, especially if it hasn't been changed for a while. But they know you're probably not keeping track of when you change it. You may not even know the size you need. If you go to cleanairclub.ca and sign up, they've got that covered for you. They even deliver them to make sure that, well, you don't have to keep that front of mind or top of the to-do list. As a local business, they also include a little surprise with each delivery. They promote another local business that they love, and they're proud to give back to Asthma Canada at cleanairclub.ca. So we're hanging out with Senator Paula Simons. You said that over the past while, in the context of, of your work as a senator and, and at this pandemic time, you've been talking to leaders of post-secondary institutions, university presidents, etc. cetera. Uh, we hope to be speaking with the University of Alberta's new president in short order. You, you've been talking to mayors and political leaders, and and we'll talk about your perspective on Canadian airports in just a little bit. But, but what's been, as your focus has narrowed, as you've started to apply your efforts in certain areas, uh, what has your personal COVID response looked like from a professional standpoint? The challenges we have in this country is that municipalities, especially the large municipalities, kind of fall into a no man's land when it becomes, when we have a crisis like this. Uh, there is no direct access that the municipalities have to federal relief dollars. And there's no direct access they have to the public policy discussions that are that are going on in Ottawa and also also in Alberta. And so I thought, okay, well, what can I do to be to be useful? And so I started reaching out to mayors all across the province. I started with the mayors in in sort of the, you know, the Metro Edmonton region, and then started reaching out to, you know, mayors from Fort McMurray or, you know, Wood Buffalo, Grand Prairie, Calgary, Brooks, all over the province, trying to get a sense of what was happening in different municipalities, what support they needed. 
And then I went back to my Senate colleagues and I put together sort of an ad hoc working group of senators who were concerned about municipal issues so that we met with the federal ministers who are most involved. There is no federal minister directly responsible for municipal affairs, but you know, we, we, we met with uh, Catherine McKenna, who's the Minister, Minister of Infrastructure and Communities. You know, we've been trying to, to get people in Ottawa to pay more attention to what uh, a, a huge existential blow this has been to municipalities across the country. And several of my Senate colleagues have a strong background in municipal affairs. Um, they're former mayors, for example, uh, who are in the Senate. And you know, so we've really been trying to see if there's a way that the Senate can bring more attention to the fact that municipalities need more stable funding, need for, you know, for the really big municipalities, which are bigger than some provinces, need to have a form of governance that recognizes the extraordinary responsibilities that have been downloaded to municipalities. So I've been working with senators from across the country to try and make this not just an Alberta issue, but a national discussion about how we find a more useful way to involve municipalities in these really important decisions and and in in response to this covid crisis and and beyond. Let me ask you to I don't want to say dumb down but but let let's say in the spirit of 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 making some high level or at least tedious exercises like understanding federal legislation to to make it less tedious to make it more acceptable would you take us into the newest federal COVID relief bills, a C4 and C9. I know you've been taking a look at them, but what what is the average person right now that's they've got the kids schooling from home in the background right now and uh, you know the, the kettle's going and the dogs are barking and they're looking for their breakfast and they just want to know what's going on, but they don't have time to sift through all of these dozens and dozens and dozens of pages. What do people need to know? What's really, what are you keeping a keen eye on with regards to this legislation? Well, with C4, I mean, I've really been disappointed, I have to say. I've been disappointed with the federal government and with provincial governments because I don't think anybody's done a very good job of explaining to people the benefits in C4, which are really, really important right now when we need people to stay home if they are exhibiting symptoms that could be COVID-19 or if they're caring for someone. Uh, so it's really, we can't just shut things down and tell people, well, just you know, live on your savings because it's been a really hard eight months. You can't just ask people to survive on on what what may now be be nothing or credit lines maxed out or savings gone. So Bill C4 establishes uh, a basic emergency benefit. If you have to stay home because you're sick, if you're ordered to stay home because of COVID, uh, you're eligible for uh, $500 a week in benefits. And there's an even better benefit if you're a caregiver. And I think this is so important. Uh, so if you're um, a, a parent of a young child and your your kid is now you know sent home from school because there's a 14 day uh, lockdown. Uh, you know, your your six. You know, your your six year old can't go back to grade one. Uh, and how are you going to look after your six year old? So the emergency caregivers benefit uh, gives you again five hundred dollars a week uh, for a maximum of twenty six weeks to look after little kids under the age of twelve uh, if they're home because of COVID nineteen. And it also applies to caregivers 
uh, of dependent adults. So if you have an adult child with a developmental disability and their day program is canceled, if you have a family member who was living in a group home and now they can't live in the group home because of COVID-19, you're also eligible for that caregiver benefit. And I don't think most people know about those benefits. And I don't think any government has done a particularly stellar job of talking about them. So I'm grateful that you gave me the chance to talk about them here. These are benefits that were passed unanimously by the House of Commons. So I'm not saying this, I mean, I'm not a liberal, I'm not a member of the government. I'm saying this, you know, all parliamentarians recognized how essential this was. And I want more people to know that those benefits are there if they need them. Uh, C9, which we just more recently passed, um, it extends the wage top up at 65% for eligible businesses. So I want people to know that that program hasn't gone away. And it also fixes uh, the rent uh the rent support program, which in its first incarnation didn't work very well because it asked landlords to apply. Uh, in this case, it asks, it, it gives the money to the tenants to pay to the landlords. And so this provides, um, and there are all kinds of scales based on how big your business was and how much revenue you've lost, but it provides a backstop, uh, a rent subsidy. And if there's an actual lockdown in your community and your business is closed by provincial government order, there's an even bigger top up, to, you know, up, up into the 90, 90, 95% of, of your rent uh, being covered, which is remarkable. So for a lot of Alberta businesses, that won't kick in because a lot of Alberta businesses haven't officially been shut down. But if your business has been shut down, um, say you're a concert hall, um, you would be eligible potentially for that, for that benefit. I don't like to say people, oh, you just apply and you get the money because obviously there are application processes and I can't tell you each individual circumstance, but I think it's really important that people know those programs are out there. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And, uh, and I appreciate you sort of laying that out for people right now, obviously, uh, you know, for a lot of folks, it, it kind of feels like, you know, everything old is new again. It, it kind of feels, you know, this sort of lockdown 2.0 people are talking about and the, the business, the fiscal yeah. implications of all of this. It's really important, but we're not having the daily briefings anymore, right? The prime minister is not speaking every day at nine o'clock with, with Christia Freeland, the deputy PM finance minister speaking and Dr. Teresa Tam every single day at three o'clock and people can't tune in and, and get that information. So I appreciate it. Uh, Senator, typically right now I'd be panicking. Well, I also think, I also think people have kind of like, I think people are kind of overwhelmed too. Like at first, sure. it's funny. Like there was, they call it the novel coronavirus. And, and, and that novelty, I think in the beginning, it was like the beginning of the movie and we were all so scared and we were all so interested and hanging on every word. And now after months, the horrible thing is that this has sort of become our new reality. And I think that's part of the reason people don't seem to be responding as seriously, even as numbers climb. It's not, you know... The novelty of this has worn off. And I think there's only, you can only be in that fight or flight mode for so long before your adrenal glands kind of overload. Well said. Uh, I, I was going to say, you know, typically you and I, and, and we've spoken dozens of times in, in, in previous contexts, and uh, I would be panicking because I have a, a, an important question to ask you. But it's actually 9.01, and I've not yet got to the news headlines, and we have our first ever Real Talk Roundtable, which is set to begin in one minute, which it's clearly going to be late, but that's the beauty of it, because if we have another question, we just ask another question, and the news will be at 9.03 instead of 9.01. Paul, I feel like I'm just liberated. Or Sam. It's, you, you know, you, this, you, 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 
Yeah, Sam. Poor, poor Sam. You're going to make all his hair fall out. Sam's trying to Sam's trying to stick to a schedule, but but he's getting a clear sense of who he's dealing with here. So so everything's going to be you're ish. Bit, you're a bit of a broadcast <laughs> renegade there, Jasper. Yeah, that's, yeah, well, yeah, that's why I'm here and not in that <laughs> other studio anymore. Uh, but uh, you know, that's the, everything is going to be ish here. So so we'll start our roundtable around 9:05 ish. But Senator, let me ask you this: uh, You're a member of the Senate Transportation and Communications Committee. So I know this has to be on your radar. Uh, a lot of people are wondering what uh, the aviation sector, uh, including airports, let alone uh, airlines, what that's going to look like and and how they're going to recover from what's been a, a devastating blow to their bottom lines uh, for different reasons in the context of the airlines versus the airports. But But what's on your radar here? We'll wrap our conversation with this. This is really, really tough. And I've been speaking with airport authorities all across the province because I'm really concerned about this. I mean, the airlines are businesses and there are certain programs already available to them. For for the airport authorities, there are some huge crises looming. If you're a municipal airport, uh, like the one in, uh, in Medicine Hat, for example, uh, you're not eligible for the top-up money that, that I just talked about, those wage subsidies, because they're not available to municipalities. So if you're a municipal airport, you're not eligible for that money. Some airports desperately need rent relief. They rent their land from the federal government, long-term leases. Some airports like Fort Murray don't rent their land, and so rent relief won't help them. So airports, I mean, have just seen, of course, a cataclysmic drop in business. We need to figure out a way to keep our airports to sustain them through this crisis and to help them rebuild. Because if we just help the airlines, well, they need places to land. Uh, the other thing that I, I met with the Canadian Airports Council earlier this week, some of the smaller airports received very recently a disturbing letter from NAV Canada saying that they're looking at certain uh airport towers and whether they will still staff them with air traffic controllers. And among the airports that are potentially looking at losing their air traffic controllers potentially include Fort McMurray, Prince George, Regina, Windsor. So uh, I'm not quite sure what I've read the letter from NAV Canada. It's very vague. It says that they're, you know, sort of looking at you know, where they ought to put their air traffic controllers. But you can understand if you're an airport authority and you get a letter like that at a time like this, that you want to set your hair on fire. Because how could we possibly have the Fort McMurray Airport without air traffic controllers in the tower? That's not a sustainable model. So I'm I, you know, I only just learned about this this week when I met with the with the airport council and I'm going to be following up with NAV Canada and with Transportation Canada and I'm going to be getting our committee to look at this because, you know, uh, I understand there are huge economic pressures and that uh, that we need to respond to COVID nimbly, but I would be horrified if we started to rip apart absolutely essential economic and social infrastructure that a country like Canada needs. I mean, this is a this is a huge country. The North and the West in particular are absolutely dependent on functional airports. And we, we cannot throw those babies out with that bathwater. Paula Simons is an independent senator from the province of Alberta, a former award-winning journalist and columnist out of Edmonton with Post Media Papers, including the Edmonton Journal. We so appreciate uh, not just the work that you're doing uh, with regards to your role as a senator, but also your availability this morning. uh, And we'll look forward to uh, your return appearances here on Real Talk. Thank you for this, Senator. 
Thank you so much, Ryan. And thank you to Sam, with whom I worked at the journal years ago. It's delightful to be back with both of you this morning. Let me, let, I'm so happy to hear from you again, Paula. Thank you so much. Let me ask, let me ask you this quickly in closing. Uh, before you sign off, uh, Paula, you, you worked with Sam. And one of the really cool things about launching a show like this, and I told Sam he better buckle up because I said, I hope you're ready to be famous uh, because this show is tracking in that direction. Uh, but people will slowly be getting to know Sam Brooks, Sam, the producer. What's what's a story about Sam or something about Sam? I love how uncomfortable he is right now. What's something about Sam that you remember or that you think that our audience should know about? I think what your audience should know about Sam is that he's a man of many, many talents, um, photography, videography, uh, audio stuff, because I, I, I met Sam when we worked on podcasts together. But he is an engineer who ran away to join the, the, the media circus. I Put mean, he's an actual, camera, Sam. he has an engineering degree. I think, are, are you are you wearing the ring today? I, I, your mic's yeah. not hot. You got nice. yeah. There we go. Yeah. I'm doing a lot of things here. <laughs> you yeah. are doing a lot of um, things. Um I, I I I still wear the ring because I still I, I still have some touch point engineering and I like to bring my science background in when I can. And uh you know, I, I paid five years and forty thousand dollars for this ring. I'm I'm damn well gonna wear it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, Paula, I just I don't have to tell you how lucky we are to have Sam here on the Real Talk team, and I love that you and I have that in common that we've both worked with him. Well, thanks. And, and, you know, great, 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 great launch week. Uh, I'm really excited and looking forward to seeing who, who comes on next. Thanks. Appreciate that. That's Senator Paula Simons. Uh, our Real Talk Roundtable is set to go here. We're featuring uh, and celebrating independent Alberta media. That's coming up in just a moment. Sam, quickly, I want to recognize our friends at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. They are powering Real Talk through its first week and beyond here, streaming live on YouTube and Mixler. And of course, the podcast that seems to be grabbing everybody's attention. We're thrilled about that. My personal relationship with Sherwood Dodge goes back 10 years or more. So when my wife and I bought our first Jeep Grand Cherokee and I just swung out about a month ago to visit the brand new St. Albert Dodge dealership. It's gorgeous. They just wrapped up construction on it a few months ago and it's uh, stunning. Customer service, excellent. Now I'm in a brand new version of that Jeep Grand Cherokee and it's incredible. If you're looking to have confidence on the winter roads, make your way through those conditions without having to give a second thought on whether or not you're properly equipped for a Canadian winter, Go check out the Jeep lineup, Alberta's Best, at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. Uh, Sam, before we get to our roundtable panelists, why don't we take a, a very quick look at what's making headlines today. Here's a brief look at the news so you know what's going on. As mentioned, Alberta's Chief Medical Officer of Health, and we'll take this story on with our panelists coming up in just a moment. Dr. Dina Hinshaw says she is, quote, profoundly disappointed that somebody leaked secret recordings of internal conversations showing conflict between civil servants and politicians over Alberta's COVID-19 response. Dr. Hinshaw calls it a violation of the oath we've all taken. That a quote, of course, and says there will be an investigation to, to determine who made those recordings. Meantime, Alberta is introducing rapid COVID-19 testing for people showing symptoms as the government continues to attempt to trace all cases within the province. This announced by Health Minister Tyler Shandro on Thursday. All right, let's get to our roundtable. This is going to be a tradition for us on Fridays. 
here on Real Talk uh, as we welcome in, you know, two, three, maybe even four panelists on any given subject. We're going to ask you to chime in with your opinions, your questions using the Twitter hashtag RealTalkRJ. Or, of course, if you're watching streaming live on YouTube, you can leave your comments or questions there on that conversation. Uh, let's get to our guests. All three of these individuals that you're going to meet today are operating and in some cases owning independent media outlets in the province of Alberta. You see it here on our split screen where he's stacked up next to me, a recognizable face in Alberta's politics to be sure. Derek Fildebrandt is the publisher, president, and CEO of the Western Standard. From 2015 to 2019, uh, Mr. Fildebrandt was the MLA out of Strathmore Brooks. He served as the finance critic for the Wild Rose leader as well of the Freedom Conservative Party through Alberta's most recent provincial election. For six years, from 2009 to 2015, uh, Derek Fildebrandt was the Alberta Director and National Research Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Derek, welcome to Real Talk, and thanks for making time for us this morning. Uh, good morning. It's, uh, geez, uh hell of a production quality it's looking a lot like the last show yeah well we appreciate that and uh, look forward to talking about production with all three of our panelists uh, in just a moment uh, again that's Derek Fildermatt with Western Standard next to him this is Jeremy Clazes. and if you don't know Jeremy I guarantee if you pay attention to news coverage in the province of Alberta, you know what he's doing. He's the founder and the editor-in-chief of The Sprawl, which is a Calgary journalism startup for Albertans who are looking for more than just the daily news grind. With regards to background, Jeremy worked as a freelancer who covered Calgary. That was his beat for local and international media, including Monocle, Swerve, and the CBC. Jeremy, welcome to Real Talk. This is your debut, of course. We're happy to have you here. It's very good to be here, Ryan. Thanks uh, for the opportunity. And rounding out our panel today, uh, this is the first time that Tommy Ajeli and I have met, and it's a real pleasure. Tommy has a, a background in communications as a freelancer, has, has covered subject matter ranging from workers' rights all the way through to, to the nightlife of some of Canada's larger cities, including the city of Calgary. In her new capacity as editors, as the editor at Afro in the City Media, Tommy writes about intersectional justice and the black experience. Uh, Tommy's also the co-host of a podcast called Allow Me to Intersect, which explores the nuances around a variety of social issues from an intersectional perspective. Tommy, we're thrilled to have you here. Officially, welcome to Real Talk. I, because there's going to be a bit of a delay, I want to just fit my question in and let you go first. What's Afros in the City Media all about? Introduce us to your independent outlet. Oh, yeah. Thanks so much for having me, first of all. Um, yeah, Afros in the City is all about um, amplifying Black voices here in our region, specifically in Calgary. Um, it really started by, because of a conversation that a few of us Black, black folks were having um, during the Black Lives Black Lives Matter protests here in Calgary. Um, you know, we are seeing a lot of local news coverage and the thing that kind of stood out to a lot of us was that these stories weren't being told by black journalists. So we really decided to kind of kick off a platform where we could get in there and, and tell our own stories and really amplify um, black voices in Calgary. Derek, I want to ask you about Western Standard. Now, you're you're in a unique position on this panel as the only former elected official, the only politician. And, and as mentioned, your involvement with Canadian Taxpayers Federation as well reiterates 
that you've had experience from a number of different perspectives when it comes to political commentary, political action, political discourse. If people visit your website, Western Standard, one of the first things they'll see is a pop-up, that, and it's a great piece of marketing, by the way. It reiterates that you will not take any of Justin Trudeau's federal media fund. You're crowdfunded. What's it been like transitioning your career from politics into political commentary, most especially as an independent? Well, in some respects, it's actually a throwback. With the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, I was a regular columnist. Uh, I would be regularly published in the Sun Chains and then Post Media before they were amalgamated. Uh, and from time to time, the Globe and Mail. I love writing. I've always loved uh, trying to express uh, writing opinion columns. Uh, I'm not a news guy, but uh, I, I get to do that again. Although increasingly, I find myself more concerned with editing others and um, managing the corporate side of things. Uh, then I actually have time for writing, unfortunately, but uh, I, I found it extremely rewarding. Um, I, I know there were uh, some hoping that uh, post-politics I would go away. Uh, those people probably don't know me very well. Uh, and we had to create a platform. We saw a vacuum in the media um, for, uh, you know, there is a blossoming alternative media out there. And I think it's being stifled by uh, efforts by the government to prop up the old uh, corporate, mostly centrally Canadian-owned um, mainstream media. And, and, and by artificially propping that up, it's strangling the smaller players trying to break into the scene, uh, market disruption, if you will, which is a natural part of the creative process and the economic process. Uh, but we've, we've had uh, tremendous success in building a uh, crowdsourced, uh, broad-based membership. Uh, and we're increasingly finding some success on the advertising side, although that's uh, that's come a bit slower. But uh, media can exist without being funded and licensed by government. Uh, it just has to have the balls to say no. Uh, I want to encourage, if, if, if it hasn't gone without saying, I want to encourage uh, each of our panelists here to interact with one another. Feel free to, uh, unless the delay uh, stops us from doing this, I want to ask you to please feel free to interact with one another, interrupt each other respectfully, and and further the conversation in the direction that you see fit. Uh, Jeremy, uh, Derek touches on something, doesn't he, there, which is the, the traditional business model of media. Uh, if you talk about print newspaper, boy, has that proven to to be facing enormous challenges right now. People would maybe describe this as the dusk uh, of the traditional newspaper business. You take a look at some of the federal funding that's been provided to media outlets to keep them afloat as as big advertisers like Google and Facebook have been taking the lion's share of advertising dollars. You've been very transparent and very open and, quite frankly, very well organized about how you crowdfund Sprawl and how you hire people, you put incentives in front of your loyal readers. You say once we reach this membership level, we'll be able to hire another person to do this. Uh, how is it different, uh, what you're doing now, versus what you've had some experience in, in, in either working in or observing traditional media, and how are you making a successful go of it? I mean, just a short time in, everybody in Alberta has heard of what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, I think the big difference is uh, community and relationship. That's a key part of this model. So the advertising model uh, worked for a long time, as you say, for newspapers, uh, and they had their heyday. Uh, but right now, um, 
yeah, you could try to get an ad advertising driven model going, but what's really nice about the, uh, the model we have is that folks have a stake in it. So when we say support the sprawl, you know, people pitch in five or $10 a month and that makes our journalism sustainable. Right now we're doing a campaign because we want to hire another full-time journalist. So people feel invested in it. They feel like they're a part of it. It's not just something that they are consuming, uh, but they're actually a part of making it happen. And I think that's the difference. It's community. People are looking not just for journalism in Alberta, although obviously I think that's very important, uh, but what they're looking for is community. They're looking to be a part of something. And especially now in Alberta, where many, many people feel, uh, do they belong here? A lot of people are asking that question. Do I belong in Alberta anymore? Do I want to stay here? Uh, what is my place here? So I, I think the sprawl and journalism generally can connect people to the place where they live and connect them with uh, each other and with, yeah, with themselves too. Uh, yeah. Tommy, I can, I can see that you're, you're nodding in agreement to what, what you're hearing from Jeremy. I'm, I'd like to ask you to build on his thought, uh, but also let me ask you in the context of this question, how does being an independent outlet impact how you discuss or cover issues like race and intersectionality and everything else uh, that you prioritize? How does being an independent outlet change how you can tell those stories? Yeah, I love the fact that um, being independent basically allows us to discuss a lot of the nuances that happen um, in Calgary and without sort of having to worry about being behind the veil of like perceived objectivity, essentially. Um, we can really dive into these stories and experiences and really discuss that. And, um, you know, we've actually worked closely with Jeremy in helping develop how we want to build our platform as well. So everything that he was saying about community is a big, um, yeah, a big way that we want to approach this moving forward. We want this to be a community building initiative just as much as a media platform. And we really want it to be a tool that kind of um, brings black folks together in Calgary. And um, yeah, just kind of helps them connect and feel like they might actually have a home heal here in Alberta and, and specifically in Calgary. There are models in, in building audiences uh, traditionally when it comes to media. You'll see during the ratings periods, they'll call them sweeps in radio. That's when all the radio stations buy all the advertising on the billboards and the buses and the LRT cars. Uh, you know what traditional advertising looks like with regards to sponsorship, big music festivals sponsored by the local newspaper or, or whatever the case may be. Uh, Derek, when it comes to building an audience, uh, I think that you and I have something in common in that when we launched our media venture, there was existing name recognition. So you probably brought in a bit of an existing audience already, people that were at least willing to give you a shot and check out what you were putting out there. How do you grow your audience as an independent outlet that probably you know can't afford to purchase 15 billboards or splash your face across city buses? How are you growing your audience independently? Yeah, I think that's a fair comment. Uh, I mean, we didn't come out of nowhere. Uh, I purchased the Western Standard, um, at least the rights to the name and intellectual property as it had existed as a print magazine before. There was an existing brand, although it had been gone for quite some time. 
but we've just had to do it organically, uh, building it up bit by bit, building our, our newsletter lists, building our memberships. Um, if, if I've made a big mistake with the Western Standard in the last year, it's that I've been too cheap in uh, being willing to invest in uh, building our social media platforms. I think uh, uh, the other guests on the panel will probably sympathize with how uh, aggravating Facebook algorithms are that they f essentially force you to pay if you want to grow your page. And that's, you know, that's where 80% of our traffic comes through is uh, through Facebook and then through Twitter. Um, people, you know, the days when people would uh, bookmark a page, you come back and check it uh, a couple times a day. Those days are long since gone. I, I do love our few 80 year old readers who do do that, but it's, uh, they're very far and few between. Uh, so, you know, we have not put enough money into uh, investing and building up our, our social media channels as they essentially force you to pay for now. Uh, we've, we've done it organically, uh, but uh, despite not investing correctly, we've had tremendous success. We have on average more than 600,000 readers per month, which uh, at least comparing uh, our Google Analytics data to what is publicly available for our competitors, that puts us as the number thir uh, third most read online news platform in Western Canada, adjusted for bounce rates. Uh, not always number three, but uh, more often than not. So that puts us in the very top tier there with the Vancouver Sun, the Calgary Herald, and uh, norm normally uh, kind of fighting between third and fourth with the Calgary Sun uh, and some of the others of that size. So we've been tremendous in growing our readership. Our readership is tremendous. Um, you know, we're, we're trying to straddle a few worlds here. Uh, the advertising model is broken. Uh, I think your other panelists uh, will, will understand if they've ever tried to use Google AdSense, how much of a scam that is. Uh, Google has very much become uh, a, a near monopoly on online advertising. They charge a ton for, uh, for advertisers uh, to buy ads, and then they pass on uh, very few pennies on the dollar to the platforms actually hosting it. Uh, so you can have incredible readership and make very, very little on Google ads. Uh, so we, we've been trying to build a sales team uh, selling direct advertising. We've, uh, we've had some very good recent success with that. Uh, but the, the, the bread and butter is building our membership. Uh, other panelists have talked about this in their own models, building a, a sense of community. Um, we don't, our, our people aren't just subscribers, they're members. They have a real say in things. I treat our members who are paying five, 10 or 20 bucks a month as if uh, they're my boss within reasonable limits they don't get to dictate editorial policy but uh no everybody know, still knows you derek Every, everybody knows you're not taking marching orders from anybody you never have why would you start now <laughs> fair enough uh but I, I at least i do try to listen from time to time even if i don't agree yeah there you go tommy how important when we talk about uh, and, and i like how derek talks about his his members uh, and, and I feel the same way. I mean, I intentionally refer to our audience here. It's, it's only a week old. We're in our infancy, but it's a community. These are participants. These are people that are joining us on a journey. Uh, when it comes to what you're doing at Afros in the City, I should mention, by the way, you can read what Derek does at westernstandardonline.com. If you want to see what Tommy and, and their team are doing at Afros in the City, T-H-A, afrosinthecity.com, you can see more. How do you approach building that community? How important is something like advertising i mean where are your priorities when it comes to how you're building the business out and growing the platform yeah i think our um priorities right now are really kind of 
they're super grassroots. It's really kind of building from the inside out. I mean, we've all kind of talked about that importance of community and membership. And I think um, for us being a platform for Black people, I think Black people, especially in, in our region, in Calgary and in Alberta, have have felt pretty ignored when it comes to um, public discourse. So that's something that we plan to address as well by actually inviting our readership and our members to publish their stories with us. Um, so that's one way that we really want to grow that community is actually inviting people to submit and sharing um, the stories from our membership and readership and, and kind of growing that way from the inside out. Jeremy, I would imagine with, with your team. Can I jump? Of course you can. Go ahead. I was sorry, the delay is weird, but I think that's exactly it. Tommy nailed it. Like, that's what you want to do. You want to invite people into what you're doing, not just here's another article, here's another article. Uh, and as Derek said, like the days of people checking your website, uh, you know, several times a day or even every day uh, to see what you're publishing, those days are gone. So it, it's interesting because like the more you can invite people into your process and kind of slow it down a bit. I think everybody's tendency at the start is like, oh, we got to be publishing all the time and we got to be keeping up with, you know, these other media outlets. And, and I think it's actually the opposite. It's like, no, let's let them do their thing. They're, they, they got more resources than us still, uh, even though, you know, the Calgary Herald and the Edmonton Journal, those newsrooms have been eviscerated. Uh, but even so, they can cover the daily news stuff better than we can. So it's about how do we slow it down? How do we invite people into this process um, and make it a little more organic and participatory? So how have you done that? Let me ask you that in follow-up. How are you doing what you described you know you have to do to be successful? Yeah, yeah. We've experimented with uh, a few things. Like one thing we did was... Uh, we did a pop-up newsroom at the Calgary Library uh, all about the future of Calgary. So we kind of hashed out, we collaborated with the library and hashed out some questions about uh, what do you want to see in Calgary's future? What do you see as the direction of this city? And then folks could come and participate in it and write, uh, you know, submissions that they'd post on a bulletin board. Uh, our comics artist, Sam Hester, uh, was there and she'd be documenting and talking to people and we there were school classes that came in and we uh, gave them assignments that was a lot of fun uh, you know training them to be journalists being like okay go find something in the library and report back with your story and let's make a podcast or let's draw a comic like let's do something fun uh, and I think that's part of it is like this is not deadly serious the stuff we cover yes a lot of times it is deadly serious and especially now of course but I think there's also a sense in which, you know what, let's uh, lighten this a bit. Let's, let's keep it light. So we do that through comics. That's one of the ways we do it. Our comic artist, Sam Hester, who you know, uh, Ryan, because she just documented one of your past uh, discussions. Like, uh, like, well, I like, I like that comic. Blows my mind. It totally blows my mind what Sam Hester put out. Uh, if people haven't seen it, uh, for some reason, it's garbling up our audio quality when I show it on my screen here. We're still figuring out the tech aspects of of going live every single morning here on YouTube. But you can check it out on my Twitter profile. Uh, we'll show it to you in just a moment. Sam's loading it up. But just a phenomenal bit of illustration. And Sam Hester deserves incredible credit. Uh, follow Sam on Twitter at Calgary Hester. Derek, what did you like about what you just heard from Jeremy? What, where was he bang on? 
Oh, uh, not so much the content. I can't speak too much of the content, but uh, I, I remember they had uh, they had a screen, the kind of kind of comic representation of the whole uh, kamikaze candidate uh, scandal. However, one wants to address that, and they had they had some funny comics, and they had one of me looking very nervous and on edge, and uh, I, I I decided I, I should have at least some intellectual property rights over it since it was a, a comic of me. So I've decided to steal it and make it my avatar in those social media uh, platforms. <laughs> okay, well, there you go. I like that. Here it is, uh, Sam. Yeah, let's, our, let's pull our, the... uh... Jeremy, go ahead. Uh, you can answer while you're talking. We're going to be seeing Sam Hester's work uh, over top of you so our, our viewers at home can see exactly the, this cartoon we're talking about. But, Jeremy, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say our cartoonist, uh, this is one of our other cartoonists who did the comic you're talking about, Derek, about the kamikaze uh, scandal. Uh, Eric Dick, his name is, and he got a kick out of uh, out of you using that as your Twitter avatar. Yeah. Um, but yes, it's interesting because cartoons are, I mean, they're, uh, if you go back to newspapers a century ago, there were a lot of cartoons. There were, you know, political cartoons, often very scathing. So in a way, uh, some of what we're doing is a throwback to that kind of stuff. Uh, we're going to be uh, returning to our three panelists here. This is the first ever Real Talk Roundtable. And for obvious reasons, uh, we're promoting and checking in with and celebrating independent media outlets in the province of Alberta. You know, one of the reasons that we're able to be here independently uh, with you each and every morning is because we have the support of some phenomenal sponsors like Friesen Brothers. Uh, they're working and getting very close to opening their 15th Alberta location, which is going to be this beautiful store in South Edmonton. I probably don't have to tell you if you, you live in, in Hinton or if you live in Fort Saskatchewan or Stony Plain or Drumheller or any of the other Alberta communities that have Friesen Brothers there as a big player in that community. They're, they're huge on community connection. I don't have to tell you what their service model is. It's the best quality food, Alberta-owned, Alberta-grown, They've got these Red Seal chefs, Red Seal chefs that are ready to go this Christmas. We know it's going to be a unique holiday season. If you want to take yourself out of the kitchen, take the stress out of everything and just be present with your family, whether your family unit's two or ten, the team of Red Seal chefs at Friesen Brothers are ready to help you out with fresh turkeys and Alberta produce grown right here. And, of course, their world-famous Friesen Brothers sourdough. You can link to their website by checking out ryanjesperson.com slash sponsors. You can click on the sponsors link on our website. Uh, Tommy, one of the stories that everybody's talking about this week, of course, is the leak. Nobody knows who leaked it, but leaked information that allowed the CBC to report that maybe Alberta's chief medical officer of health isn't getting through to Alberta's health minister, Alberta's premier. It indicates a disconnect between the public service and politicians, but of course, a lot of people simply interested in the leak itself and the reporting around it. With a story like this, do you plant a flag on this one? Do you have a strong opinion on the story that's basically been leading the headlines for, for the last 24 hours of this cycle this week? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. Um, you know, a lot like Jeremy was saying, obviously we're not, we don't aim to kind of cover that breaking news, but obviously as this is something that is affecting everybody right now. Um, we definitely want to look at some of the, once again, the nuances in the situation that are affecting our community. So something that has um, been really interesting to me as of late that I've been looking into is kind of the implications around 
collecting and distributing race-based data around COVID-19. Um, it's something that we've seen in other provinces in Canada, and it's something that we've seen in the States as well. And I think it's really interesting how that kind of overlaps with the existing conversation we've been having around systemic racism in Alberta and how that kind of data could potentially drive that conversation forward. Um, so that's been something that's kind of been interesting to me as far as what's happening right now for Albertans and how that conversation could kind of interject with some of the other, um, you know, race-based conversations that we're having. You know, before our conversation wraps, Tommy, I want to circle back to a piece that you wrote on Afros in the City. That coming up uh, in, we'll say, five to ten minutes' time. Derek, let me ask you about the story about the leak, uh, you know, you, you've, you've, you've been in politics, you understand how that works, you, you've worked alongside the public service, you've certainly interacted uh, with those outside of an elected position that work closely with elected officials. What sort of an impact would something like this have on the mechanism of government? How big of an issue would this be behind the scenes? Well, leaks take place normally because someone has an agenda. That agenda isn't always necessarily negative. Uh, in their view, it's always positive, and very often it is. It could be someone who views themselves as a whistleblower, uh, or it could be someone uh, trying to attempt uh, political gamesmanship of some kind. Uh, we don't really. We can only speculate as to the motives because we can only speculate as to who it is. Uh, although I'm sure within the government and uh, people who were in that meeting, they probably have their own theories. Uh, I think the, the, mo the biggest thing that is going to come out of this is that when there are leaks, uh, and trust me, in the journalism business, we love leaks. We'll, we'll take them. Uh, nothing is better than getting a brown envelope in your mail at the office. But uh, uh, leaks uh, do harm the ability of government to operate. Uh, this means that, um, especially during uh, you know, a pandemic, uh, people want to be meeting by Zoom, uh, like, like we're all doing here. They want to be meeting remotely. Uh, but the security around those kinds of meetings is very lax. You have no idea when someone's got the tape recorder held up to it or, or, or they're recording what's happening. Uh, so this is going to encourage more in-person meetings and it's going to encourage people to be less forthright. Uh, I don't think they're, I mean, you can, you, you can argue one way or another about if people should be taking Dina Hinshaw's, uh, Dr. Dina Hinshaw's advice 100%. Uh, I'm not aware of any government in the history of the world, uh, or at least the democratic world, that accepts 100% uh, of what the bureaucrats or the non-elected government officials tell them. Normally what the, the, the bureaucrats tell them informs things and governments will do 80 or 90% of it. They tend to be more, more expert in their field, but they tend to be myopic and, and focus on their one avenue. Uh, economic bureaucrat, uh, fiscal bureaucrats, economic bureaucrats won't really have very much to say about healthcare, but healthcare bureaucrats won't have very much to say about the economy. So uh, the politicians, can't do 100% of what their uh, their unelected bureaucrat or public officials are telling them. Uh, so that that really shouldn't come as any great shock. It's just, uh, you know, as Bismarck said, um, uh, laws are like sausages. Uh, you never want to see them being made. And and this is a, one of those rare circumstances where people get to see the sausage being made and it's never pretty. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, nobody that has seen sausage get made uh, really typically tends to enjoy sausage as much as they did before. Uh, that's Derek uh, Fildebrandt of the Western Standard. We're also talking to Tommy Ajelli of Afros in the City Media and, of course, Jeremy Klazas of The Sprawl. Jeremy, what do you make of, of the ethics 
around this. Uh, I talked about it uh, with Senator Paula Simons prior to this roundtable. Um, as far as I'm concerned, I, I don't have any issue with the reporters investigating the leak and pushing out the story. Uh, the impetus is on them to do exactly that when confronted with legitimate information that is in the public interest. But what about the ethics around circumventing the whistleblower process and leaking information to investigative reporters? Do, do you have a strong opinion on this either way? I've seen smart people taking completely polarizing positions on this one. Yeah, and I've been... I've been thinking of this. I'm kind of of two minds on it. Like, obviously, the journalist in me says, you know, this story is awesome. It should be out there. Uh, go get them. Uh, you know, that CBC investigative team, they're doing awesome work. And they're doing, uh, you know, it brings to mind George Orwell's line about, uh, you know, journalism is stuff that no, that somebody doesn't want printed and everything else is public relations, right? Um so I get that. And especially now when the stakes are so high and there's a lot of mistrust towards this government, recent polls uh, show that with the NDP polling ahead of the UCP. Um, but at the same time, when I think of it as a citizen, you know, I do understand this argument that, you know, we expect, or I would hope that people hash things out in good faith in government, you know, between uh, the civil service and politicians. I understand that you want to be able to have those conversations without somebody having a, you know, digital recorder in, in their pocket that's running. Um, but I think like when you zoom out from all of this, the issue is trust. And Dr. Dina Hinshaw hit on that yesterday. She said, trust has been broken. Okay, sure. In this circumstance, uh, specific to this leak, trust has been broken. But zoom out from that. Trust has been broken in this province. Trust has been broken between the people of Alberta and Dr. Dina Hinshaw. If you look at you know, how she was regarded at the start of this pandemic and, and, and now, and there are legitimate questions as to whether you know, this government is listening to uh, her recommendations. And she was asked quite pointedly yesterday, what are these recommendations? Like, can we see them? because that would dispel a lot of the speculation uh, that's going on here. Um, and, and, and they kind of play coy on that, both, uh, both Hinshaw and, and Chandra. So in the absence of that, and we know that this government is very ideologically driven, they're, they're doubling down on their, uh, on their beliefs, despite the evidence. Just look at their uh, COVID app that was used 19 times and they still recommend uh, using it and still tout this as a su success. So trust has been broken, but in a bigger sense than just this leak. On uh, Twitter, uh, following the Real Talk RJ hashtag, potty mouth Jason is listening in, but, but actually there's no potty talk uh, in his tweet. So Jason is keeping it PG this morning, uh, and I'm going to put this right in front of Derek Fildebrandt, publisher of Western Standard, one of our three panelists this morning here on the Real Talk Roundtable, our first every Friday roundtable. This will be a weekly tradition. Uh, Potty Mouth Jason says, if the leak had occurred in a meeting chaired by Rachel Notley, there is zero chance that Derek Fildebrandt would be warning of the danger of leaks. Is Jason on to something there, Derek? Well, this Jason must think that I'm uh, good friends with Jason Kenny. Uh, I think uh, anyone who has any perspective of this knows that I don't really have a dog in the fight between Jason Kenny and Rachel Notley. I 
I certainly didn't vote for either of them, and uh, I have no intention of voting for either of them in the future. Um, I'm probably significantly outside of the mainstream political spectrum in Alberta, uh, and don't see a home really in either of the of the two major parties. Uh, no, I, I do. I mean, if, if you like a leak, 99% of the time comes down to do you dislike who it was leaked about? Does the information coming out damage the, uh, the politician or the party that you most disagree with? Uh, so uh, Jason does have a point there, but he's wrong in assuming that I actually have a dog in this fight. Uh, most of the time, if a leak comes out and it damages the NDP, everybody who's in the UCP says, oh, that was great and that's legitimate and that's fair. If a leak comes out and it damages the UCP, everyone in the NDP says, that was great, that's legitimate and that's fair. Uh, I'm probably very much in the minority in that uh, I'm sort of uh, a pox on all the houses of the two uh, mainstream parties in Alberta. Um, but it, most of the time where someone's position on virtually any issue comes down to, does this help or hurt the party or politicians that I support? I want to, uh, I'm going to circle back and uh, for our audience's benefit here, let you know that I will uh, ask Derek where he believes the future of Alberta's, let's say outlier conservatives lie. In other words, those that would identify as small C conservatives, but don't feel at home within the United Conservative uh, Party. Uh, I want to take a look at our uh, hashtag again. Real Talk RJ is how you can talk to the show. Uh, Roger Rabbitleg is listening in. Roger says, I want impassioned debate behind closed doors at the legislature. The leak puts that at risk. Uh, Roger says, by the way, my father was a butcher and I still love sausage as much now as I did before I ran the sausage stuffer. Just saying. Is that, an, is that a technical name, the sausage stuffer? That sounds like an incredible job to have within a butcher's establishment. Uh, Tommy, we heard Jeremy quote George Orwell uh, and, and Orwell's take on what constitutes journalism. Uh, one of the other, I, I think, sort of well-known uh, you know, quotes when it comes to what journalism should be or what it represents would be that journalism should comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Uh, how much of what you and your team are doing at Afros in the City Media is based on the premise of afflicting the comfortable? How much does that drive you? Yeah, I like that. Um, I like that quote, and I think that's definitely a big part of um, what we want to do. However, I think we are careful to note that that is not our priority. I think, um, you know, the prior part of that statement of sort of comforting the afflicted is really more of what we want to do. I kind of mentioned earlier how I think that a lot of what has gone on in, in this province has kind of, you know, ignored black folks in a lot of ways. And so I think our number one priority is that kind of comfort aspects, aspect, so to speak, um, of really bringing black folks into the conversation and having their stories told and having their, their voices heard. And I think that in turn, that will definitely make some people uncomfortable. And um, yeah, that's just kind of a perk. Uh, let me let me ask you about a, a recent piece that that you wrote uh, and and people can check out again uh, if they want to learn more about Afros in the city media just check out Afros in the city T-H-A in the city uh, dot com you write about being othered take us into the to folks that aren't familiar with what that is what that means or why it's important will you take us into this piece that you wrote. 
Yeah, for sure. I think, um, you know, another term that is often thrown a lot around a lot is microaggressions. And, and that's, uh, that could sometimes be used interchangeably with othered, but sometimes not. I think othered is a really kind of soft term that shows um, sort of an experience that a lot of racialized minorities experience just kind of going through life, whether in the workplace or, or social circles. And um, so, yeah, I think a big part of what we want to do with Afros in the city as well is um, offer a resource for Black folks and offer really practical tools for kind of living life while Black in Canada and in Alberta. And othering is a huge part of that where, um, you know, in your daily life, you hear things and people make comments that aren't, um, you know, rude, so to speak, um, but really speak to the reality of the situation um, that you are you know, your humanity is essentially being challenged. So um, a big thing that we do with Afros in the city is offer just really practical tools of like, here's how you can respond to othering. Here's how you can um, sort of challenge when somebody says something to you in a sort of, whether it's a professional context or a public setting. Jeremy, when it comes to your mandate and, and how you've approached not just the journalism that the sprawl is doing, but but what you can fund, in other words, what you prioritize, uh, what's something since the sprawl's inception that you're especially proud of? Uh, well, there's a lot. <laughs> But I, I mean, one one thing that jumps to mind would have to be uh, last year, uh, before the provincial election, uh, we were the only Alberta news outlet to send a reporter to San Francisco uh, to investigate Jason Kenney's past, uh, his uh, let's just say it, his extremist past, uh, and and Taylor Lambert, our Alberta politics reporter, flew down there, and it was just plain old shoe leather journalism. Like he was knocking on doors of uh, Kenny's former classmates to try and track down, like, how did this go down? And not just how did this go down, but how did it affect you? And how is it affecting you still? And those stories are extremely illuminating, extremely relevant to our current situation as we're seeing some of these same tendencies manifest themselves right now. And, and yeah, so for, I don't know, from my vantage point, it was like, yeah, this is kick ass. Like we're doing this. Like, you know, the, the other dailies, they're covering the press conference and Taylor Lambert's in San Francisco knocking on doors. Like that's awesome. Yeah. You know, one, that's one of the things I thought was particularly interesting. This didn't get a lot of play in public discourse this week, but, but Jason Kenny in it, in announcing the government's measures on Tuesday around COVID-19 and I'm paraphrasing said something along the lines of I've never thought that I would be telling people that they couldn't see their loved ones. And one of the points I thought that was especially interesting was that that statement would only ring true to anybody that had no idea about Premier Kenny's past denying spouses from visiting their partners dying of AIDS in hospice care in California. He most certainly has thought in past that he could tell people they couldn't see their loved ones. And that was something I thought that was important to be pointed out. Derek, when it comes to work that you're and, doing... And, go ahead. And Go ahead, Jeremy. I was just going to say, and he hasn't, apo he hasn't apologized for it. This is a very important point. He has been asked point blank uh, to apologize for this on Charles Adler last year uh, before the pr provincial election. He could not bring himself to apologize for what he did in San Francisco. So I just, I just bring that up and I say, look at that. Derek, is that fair game? 
uh, premier spokespersons for the premier have have said, and this was about a year ago, probably about a year and a half ago, when the story was really blowing up. Uh, they've said, hey, listen, that was a comment from 20 or 25 years ago, or that was action from 20 or 25 years ago. The premier's personal views have evolved. Uh, and hey, I'm open uh, to forgiving someone for past views. I have no problem telling everybody here that I would be mortified if some of the ignorant, horrific, uh, discriminatory jokes and words that I used as a dumb young punk were made public. I would be in serious trouble if Facebook was around when I was in high school and university. I've said some of the dumbest shit you can imagine. And if people were to hear it now, 25 years later, I'd be mortified. It would not represent me. But here's the thing. I don't have a problem telling you that. I don't have a problem looking someone in the face that I would have offended a classmate or a call, what have you 20 years ago and said, that was my ignorance. I did not understand the complexity or the depth or the nuances of this issue. I have changed. The premier has not done that. The premier has not stepped to a podium and said, my views have evolved. My views have changed. And here's how. Is it fair to apply that historic involvement, Derek, and in how people perceive the premier today? Uh, well, it, it's funny enough, I was looking around for uh, s some piece, uh, I was googling around for something, and I actually came across this story just a, just a couple of days ago. Um, and I was kind of reminded of my own comments at the time, um, a, a, a gay staffer in the UCP at the time, uh, who could come from the Wild Rose, he quit the UCP over this and he came on board as my director of communications uh, when I was leading the then Freedom Conservative Party. Um, and uh, it uh, kind of reminded me of my own comments at the time uh, that, that were in there. Uh, look, people's views change over time. Uh, I'm not a fan of judging people outside of their times. Um, you know, Abraham Lincoln would be considered a raging bigot and racist by today's standards, but we have to judge a man by the standards of his own time. Um, but uh, we're not talking about Abraham Lincoln here. We're talking about the current premier of Alberta. Uh, people's views do change over time. Uh, you know, in the early 90s and in the 80s, uh, a public opinion on gay marriage was almost universally against it. Uh, public opinion has thankfully evolved and changed over time. Nearly everyone has had to, had to flip on that. Uh, an odd bit of trivia is that the first, American, uh, the first American president actually elected on a platform of supporting gay marriage was Donald Trump, bizarrely enough. Uh, Barack Obama converted to it while in office. But uh, on Jason Kenney on this, this is not just an issue around gay marriage. This was particularly odious. Uh, this was um, not about one's, you know, people had different views on gay marriage. A lot of people had this uh, false belief, I think, in hindsight, that uh, gay marriage was going to destroy straight marriages. Well, we already did that to ourselves and everyone can join, uh, can join the club. Um, but there, you know, people held, had sincerely held beliefs that were not always based on bigotry, that they had concerns about what this would do to the institution of marriage. They were wrong about that, but those were very often sincerely held beliefs that were not always based on bigotry. Some of them were, but many of them were not. But this one is particularly odious, though. And as, as you know, if your opinion changes over time, if you are a public official, uh, you should explain that. Uh, not just uh, say, well, gay marriage is now broadly accepted by Canadians and by Albertans, so I'm just not going to reopen it. That's not changing that's not saying you've evolved with your position that's saying that political necessity has has made that impossible to change uh you know the issue around uh you know this this campaign that was run in san francisco around the ability to visit loved ones and 
and the ability of uh, of uh, gay couples to have any kind of benefits from people dying of AIDS there who who are gay. Uh, I, I look. I, I think Jason Kenney would be well served if, in his heart, he he regrets that to just come out. Uh, and apologize, but it's not really his style. I think. I think the the political strategy was just double down and wait for it to blow over, uh, and it has. Nobody's talking about this today except for us. I, I think it's pertinent, but let, let's let's be honest here. No one else is really talking about it. Their strategy of doubling down and just letting the storm blow over seemed to have worked. Tommy, I, I, I want to yeah, ask wanna, you. Um, yeah. Highlight. Oh. Sorry. Well, let, let me just, uh, and, and, and then I'm going to yeah, have, no, I'm, I, I, I'm going to give you the floor uh, because I want to get your okay. take on this. But, but after you give us your take on this, I, I'm, I'm wondering if maybe you can broaden the conversation because we're talking about uh, either actions that would qualify as homophobic or, or potentially comments, past comments someone may have made or past attitudes someone may have displayed that would qualify as, as racist or discriminatory or misogynistic or sexist or, or what have you. Um, so, so I want to get your take on, on this specific scenario. But then as we broaden the conversation in the media landscape or in the landscape of public discourse, uh, Tommy, how would you characterize the amount of work that you still see that needs to be done in this context in Alberta? Yeah, I think um, I'll start by answering that question tons. I think there's just so much work that needs to be done. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, we're, we're just getting started um, if that, but I think in terms of um, sort of, yeah, those comments that, you know, we're in a day and age where you say something and, and 20 years later, it, you know, somebody can pull that up. And I think that in terms of addressing that, I mean, the same thing, we saw the same thing happen with, with Trudeau when those photos came out of him in blackface 20 years ago. And I think that like, with conversations like that, that it's like, it's, it was 20 years ago, everyone was doing blackface. It was just as problematic then as it is today. Um, but you know more today. So I think you do have a responsibility to own that, apologize, express regret because um, those actions, and I think in, in Kenny's case, those actions harm a lot of people in, in really real practical ways. And so while that is how life works and you can't, um, you know, yeah, you could, you could very well be a very different person today than you were 20 years ago, but your actions do have very real consequences. Um, so yeah, just like what Jeremy was saying, I think at the end of the day, the most important thing is, are you, are you showing up? Are you apologizing for the, for the damage that you caused? And I think if you're not doing that, then while it may blow over and nobody's talking about it, it is incredibly revealing. Jeremy, I want to uh, give us an opportunity here as, as we as we inch toward 10 o'clock. And, and again, it's a flexible time, but we've asked each of you for one hour of your time and we want to respect that time commitment. Um, I, I'm especially interested in how Derek Fildebrandt will answer this question with regards to, to what the next election landscape might look like and whether or not Alberta will be a two-party landscape in 2023 but but as editor-in-chief of the sprawl what role do you think that independent media will play leading up to the next provincial election which quite frank quite frankly right now feels like a lifetime away there's still a lot of time between now and then and what do you expect that landscape to look like two parties or more and i don't mean the fringe parties that'll get you know 300 votes in a riding i mean will there be a serious viable third or even fourth option what, what's your prognostication Yeah, I'll answer the first part of your question first. Like, I think independent media can 
do the stories that no one else is doing. Like, so Tommy, uh, good example. You talked about, you know, looking at race-based data uh, in all of the COVID stuff that's happening. So like, this is always the case that in the daily news cycle, there's announcements, there's chaos, there's a million things to cover. I think as independent media, we kind of leave that uh, and, and let that be covered by somebody else and then dig into some of this stuff, like Afros in the city, digging into race-based data. Uh, we'll dig in. I don't know what we'll dig into, but uh, we'll figure it out. We're doing a climate, a series on, uh, on climate action in Alberta and what that would look like if we actually took action on uh, climate change. So we're digging into some of this stuff. I think that's the way to do it. Uh, in terms of what it'll look like, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. I mean, it, it'll probably be the two uh, the two parties battling it out. I don't expect a lot of uh, change in that regard. But looking at the poll numbers, it'll certainly be uh, it'll certainly be interesting if this uh, if if these numbers hold. Uh, Derek, let me ask you. I mean, there's there's uh, you know the Alberta Party, and depending on who you talk to, the Alberta Party is either uh, to be taken very seriously or not seriously whatsoever. Uh, but the tail of the tape shows that they they received about 170,000 votes uh, last time Albertans went to the polls. So approximately uh, for every vote or every five votes, let's say that the UCP received, the Alberta party got one, not too bad. Uh, also, David Kahn is walking away from his leadership of the Alberta liberal party. So some people are speculating that, that together the membership bases of those two parties, which have, have really never come together under any leadership. I remember Greg Clark and Raj Sherman duking it out back in the day right in front of me. They had no interest in working together. But but there is some theory that Alberta's progressives could come together and have some sort of a formidable base, 200,000, 300,000 voters maybe. Uh, as mentioned, you led the Freedom Conservative Party, more of sort of a potentially, and I'll let you use your own words, a, a sort of a libertarian bent party, uh, maybe more sort of the grassroots, more more on the right side of the spectrum type party. And and, and I know uh, that whether or not he would acknowledge it or not, Alberta's premier must be aware of a growing sentiment around there, most especially in rural ridings where the party is struggling and polling uh, for obvious reasons. There's talk about the Wexit movement or Alberta independence movements. What do you think the landscape looks like in 2023? Is it a two-party election or could there be a third or fourth player that could and should be taken seriously? Well, I'll give you the best answer I can, but with all the, with a bunch of caveats that, uh, you know, they say everything before the butt is bullshit. Um, so I'll, I'll give you everything before the butt and then I'll, I'll, I'll discuss maybe how things could get interesting. Uh, right now, if there's an election today, there are probably still only two parties getting elected in the legislature. Uh, there are a significant, uh, here's where I think the Alberta party gets things wrong. They are correct in believing that there are a lot of Albertans who don't identify as being on the left or on the right. There are people in the so-called center, how much of, although that is a very relative term and that's always shifting of what we perceive as the center. Um, the problem is that the Alberta party is sort of like Switzerland trying to get into the First World War in 1917. There are two big sides on the east and the west with these big massive armies and they're trying to come into the middle. And they're just, they just get sandwiched because uh, in a two-party system, everybody fights over 5 or 10% in the very center. Uh, those are the coveted voters. There's no one more important uh, in the world than a couple of people in a couple of counties in Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Florida, or in Canada, a couple of people in the 905 in a few particular demographic and geographic locations. Uh, so the Alberta Party is trying to be Switzerland in the First World War, and it's 
extraordinarily rare in, uh, in political systems, even multi-party systems, that parties perceiving themselves to be in the center ever successfully break in. New parties nearly always break in on the margins. They have something that no one is talking about, not something that everybody's talking about, but just too much on one side or another. Uh, new parties come in on the left or the right, or in the case of Quebec, something that's linguistic, nationalist, or ethnic, uh, but they're offering something that no one else really is. So I, I think there is very much the potential of uh, uh, a, a party on the right or the uh, sovereigntist side. Uh, my old party, the Freedom Conservatives, merged with Wexit to form the Wild Rose Independence Party. Uh, I know uh, obtaining the name Wild Rose very much uh, sent a few people in the UCP uh, into uh, to a bit of a tizzy. Uh, the big question is, uh, there's kind of two questions about the success of that. Um, it'll be one, how does Jason Kenney, the relationship between Alberta and Ottawa or Jason Kenney and uh, Justin Trudeau play out on the one side? Uh, can uh, Jason Kenney obtain enough of... Um, a new arrangement, new relationship with Ottawa to satisfy uh, dissatisfied Alberta nationalists, for lack of a better term. Uh, although I don't mean the word nationalist and say the way you would in Quebec. Um, and second, uh, the Wild Rose Independence Party, will, will it uh, attract a credible leader, uh, someone with some real organizational capacity and perhaps charisma? Uh, right now, they've got Paul Hinman as their interim leader. He was the original leader of the Wild Rose before Danielle Smith. Uh, I mean, he's not the most glamorous man, but uh, he, he knows how to build a party from the ground up, uh, touring the church basements and talking to small groups until they get, you know, they go from three to five to 10 and eventually you become a serious political party. So it's going to depend on how things play out. I know um, there are many people who think that any talk of even a fair deal at all is quasi separatism. Let me tell you, the biggest foe of, of the Alberta independence movement is Jason Kenney. He is the biggest thing standing in the way right now. Uh, a lot of sovereigntists and people who have a big problem with Ottawa mostly voted for Jason Kenney because they believed he could deliver. They didn't vote for, for my party. Uh, they were voting for Jason Kenney because they thought he could beat the NDP and they believed him when he said, I'm going to go, I'm, we're going to hold a referendum and we're going to tell Justin Trudeau to get lost and we're going to get a fair deal and everything's going to be great. Uh, they have not delivered. Uh, they've had fair deal panels, they've had, uh, they've had discussions and papers but nothing has really been delivered yet. And I think people's expectations are set so high right now, and there's, uh, it's gonna be extremely difficult for him to deliver. So if Jason Kenney, uh, federalists in Alberta, even at the leftist bent, should be hoping that Jason Kenney can succeed in what he's trying to do, because if he cannot, um, uh, the polling that we've conducted uh, shows that uh, the, the bottom is gonna fall out of that party and it, uh, if, uh, if, if they fail, and if uh, a challenger like the Wild Rose Independence Party uh, manages to elect a credible leader and, uh, and gain some traction. Okay, Tommy, I want to I give you the chance to wrap our conversation here, and then I'll thank the three of you profusely for your time. I want to frame the question to you just a little bit differently, uh, not necessarily with the viability of two or more political parties by 2023, but, but I'll use this as a jumping-off point, as a news headline. Alberta's Justice Minister, the Honorable Casey Madu, uh, taking on the practice of carding 
the other day, essentially outlawing, uh, to, to use sort of lazy uh, word on the street language, basically outlawing carding. He says the government's going to take it seriously and they'd like to see changes in police protocol. Now, depending on who you talk to, uh, it's either a serious move or not. Uh, there are political supporters of the initiative. There are political critics. That's one example of a, uh, a, a, a racialized practice in the province of Alberta that has been the norm that government is becoming involved in addressing. What is another meaningful action or what is an issue around race that you would like to see become more of a political issue between now and 2023 when Albertans vote again provincially? Uh, yeah, that's a that's a big one. I think um, I think there are a lot of sort of areas, the avenues that we could address this. I think obviously, you know, we've been talking a lot about um, defunding the police, and I know that's largely on a um, on a municipal level. Um, but I think bringing conversations like that up um, is a really good one, and just. Um, really looking at resources in general, um, sort of, you know, health resources and, and social services and all of those, I would really like to see those be part of the conversation in a way um, that really addresses race in Alberta and really takes that intersectional approach and doesn't look at like, you know, health as a siloed issue and services as a siloed issue, um, but really looks at how all of these interact together. So um, I know I'm not really answering your question in a targeted way. But I think in general, I would love to see more nuanced conversations around how all of these services overlap and how we could use them to um, how they could kind of complement um, each other better to really address some of the uh, racialized issues that we're seeing in Alberta. Uh, Tommy, one of the beautiful things uh, about the Real Talk Roundtable is you can answer the questions however you like. So I appreciate that, and I appreciate the perspective that you've brought to this, the first ever roundtable. This will be a, a weekly conversation every Friday morning. Uh, Tommy Ajeli and her team, you can check out what they're doing at afrosinthecity.com. Jeremy Clazis and his uh, incredible team doing remarkable work out of Cal Calgary at sprawlcalgary.com. And then, of course, uh, uh, Southern Alberta as well, former politician turned publisher, Derek Fildebrandt, the publisher of westernstandardonline.com. Thank you so much to the three of you. I appreciate what you're putting out there, and I admire uh, what it takes. I've got a week's worth of experience now in running an independent media outlet. It's incredibly important, number one, but number two, the most exciting thing for me, it's doable. And the three of you are making it happen. Thank you for this and have a wonderful weekend to the three of you. Thanks. Good luck, Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Thanks for having everyone. us. There you have it. Every Friday, we'll bring you the Real Talk Roundtable, and it's made possible by the support of our partners, those that are joining us on our journey as we continue to bring you real talk independently that includes the team at westworld computers this studio here is powered by westworld computers and if you know max if you're a big fan of apple products you probably well consider westworld computers to be a household name it's been a family-owned independent business for more than 40 years across western canada including vancouver calgary and edmonton they're proud of the connection that they have with their customers not just on the sales side but the service side as well if you're looking to get into the game or upgrade your hardware, figure out more about what 
Apple's offerings look like, make sure you talk to Daryl and his team at Westworld Computers. We're also grateful for the support of the teams at Dairy Queen. There's six of them in Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. Is there a cooler sponsor to have? A colder sponsor to have than Dairy Queen? Are you kidding me? We're thrilled to have them here. And of course, again, as we celebrate independent ownership, as we celebrate community connection, that's what these six Dairy Queen restaurants are all about. Consider them as you're locking down, hitting the drive throughs ordering from your favorite delivery app. Dairy Queens in Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park are proud supporters of this program, and we ask that you show them some love. We also wanted to show some love today as we focused on independent media on other podcasts. And there's a local one that's doing very cool stuff, entertaining stuff, and really putting a lot of effort into their production value. We wanted to give them the spotlight for a moment. Check this out. Ladies and gentlemen, and those of you who are neither, do you ever long for a little more adventure and mystery in your life? Are you hungry for tales of mean streets and double-crossing dames? Well, do we have a podcast for you. Hard Boiled is a mystery radio serial set in Edmonton during the 1930s, and it's packed with gangsters and grifters, psychics and sapphics, fascists and femme fatales, and more sinister schemes than you can shake a stick at. Download Hard Boiled wherever you get your podcasts, or check out EmpressOfLandingsProductions.com for more information. I love it. So if you're looking for a new podcast, looking for some new entertainment, and you want to support local talent, we're proud to shine the spotlight on Hard Boiled today. We've been looking forward to this all week. When it comes to Friday traditions, we're going to have a few every single week here on Real Talk, and that includes Trash Talk, which is presented by the team at Local Waste. Now, here's the deal. This is your chance to get stuff off your chest, and you do it by sending us an email at talk at ryanjesperson.com. Make sure in the subject line you let us know it's a submission for Trash Talk. Sam, are you ready to tee this up? Let's get into some Trash Talk. All right, an email from Lecky. Ryan, it's unreal how the same Jason Kenney who preaches about ethics, transparency, freedoms, and constitutional rights passed Bill 1, outlawing peaceful protest, censors all of Dr. Hinshaw's recommendations, severely weakened workers' rights and employment standards, uses the war room to sole source contracts to his buddies, constantly attacks public health care, plans to sell our public parks against the wishes of the majority of Albertans, and only consults on these matters with hand-picked stakeholders already aligned with his agenda. It seems to me, says Lecky, that COVID is about the only thing he isn't interested in controlling. What about this one from Joe, who says, hey, call me Joe, because I can't use my real name on air. I didn't choose to have cancer, says Joe. It isn't my choice that one of the chemo medication risks impairing lung function to save my life means that if I get COVID, my immune system is destroyed, my lungs sensitive, there's a high likelihood it would literally kill me. I've already voluntarily isolated. I'm the sole provider for a family of four. I'm 38 years old and physically active. When I hear the premier say the charter is his concern, I want to know where he places my right to life. That is my first protected right, and the charter allows the suspension of any of these rights. He says there's a cure for my cancer but it's aggressive, it's dangerous, and I'm receiving it in a pandemic. Through the pandemic, I've advanced from stage one to four. I feel that Alberta's Premier's crossing a line that seems traitorous at this point. 
He says that is not okay. And what about this one from Jay, who says on Tuesday, both the Premier of Alberta and the Health Minister stated anybody can work from home, should work from home. Yet here I find myself day after day driving into school so I can teach my online class. Last week, my best friend, also teaching online from her school, contracted COVID-19. This could have been avoided. So the question remains, when will the government start listening to advice? Why are we and other workers expected to come in even though we could do our jobs from home? Is it for optics because we're public sector employees or is it simply because our lives aren't valued? Says Jay, I don't want to assume it's the latter, but I honestly don't know anymore. And here's my trash talk for this week. I'm not going to get all meta about leaks. We'll take that on again on Monday. I'm not even going to talk about COVID restrictions. I want to talk to you about the way that the Premier staff is conducting themselves to journalists. CBC journalist Jenny Russell pushed out yesterday evidence that the Premier's Deputy Press Secretary, Harrison Fleming, is grinding an axe in doing the course of his duties. In fact, to quote Mr. Fleming, the Deputy Press Secretary of the Premier of Alberta, to a reporter, I'm sure you can appreciate that not everyone has the luxury of receiving a guaranteed paycheck from a state-funded broadcaster who receives over $1.2 billion tax dollars every year. Mr. Fleming and Premier Kenny, your personal problem with the public broadcaster has absolutely nothing to do with journalists carrying out their duties expecting transparency and professionalism from the highest political office in the province. It starts to time to get off your high horse and start treating journalists and the office you represent with respect. That is unacceptable. And this is Trash Talk, brought to you by Local Waste. So there you have it. The first week of Real Talk. You know, once the, when, once the plexiglass shield comes down, I'm going to have to be dodging papers. Yeah, I yeah. think so. <laughs> We're going to have the plexiglass shield up for a while, which I, I, I somewhat regret, Sam. I can't wait for this gets ba- to get back to normal because that means that the uh, Real Talk Roundtable will be able to happen here in studio. And yes, we can crack beers during the Real Talk Roundtable, uh, but for now, we'll be doing it remotely. Uh, we also wanted to give a shout out. Uh, this is a, a partner as well. Before we wrap the show, that means a lot to me personally. Personally, I've been telling you how much I appreciate the support of Todd's Mechanical because, yeah, we have some big guys advertising with us, but Todd is proudly not a big guy. Well, I mean, personally, he's actually he's actually jacked. The, the guy the guy's actually stacked. He's jacked and stacked, but he's a small business owner. Right? Formerly in the oil field. You can put some rock and roll underneath me, Sam. I don't mind. Rock and roll's cool. I, uh, I, I still had the trash talk music running. I was trying to bring the ad music in. There okay, we go. Okay, so we want to keep good. we want to keep that grinding rock oh, specific yeah. to trash Absolutely talk. Absolutely. Okay. We do. Yeah. All right. Well, Todd's mechanical, here's the deal. The guy's had a career in the oil sands, but he wanted to be closer to his family, find a little bit more stability. So he's taking his talents and applying them to his plumbing and heating business. He's a small business. Every dollar he earns means a lot to him, and he knows the exact same goes for you. So if you want to make sure you're getting great service and you want to make sure your furnace is going to not, I don't know, leave you stranded when it's minus 25, think of the little guy, the independent business 
that's ponying up to advertise here on Real Talk because he wants your business. Call Todd's Mechanical today at 780-499-7598. Sam Brooks, five days in, a podcast ranked in the top four in Canada, a listening and viewing audience that's joining us every morning and participating en masse on the YouTube comments section, using the Real Talk RJ hashtag, and your first week as the senior producer of a live talk show. How are you feeling five days in? Oh man, five days in. It's uh, this is a this is a never ending train that you just have to grab onto and hold on. I mean, that's that's live radio, and that's live radio without a control room behind me. You know, it's it's there's a there's a lot to juggle here. I leave the studio just amped every day. Like this is, you, you know, I I got here at seven this morning because I had to get a lot of stuff ready for our for our roundtable, and I can't remember the last time I was excited to come to work at seven in the morning. So, uh, this is that that is how I feel about our first week. Well, Sam, we're thrilled to have you here. I couldn't be more excited to have you as part of the team. And you know what? We we've we've had a few hurdles this week to be expected. We launched a show. I mean, I got fired two months ago. A couple of days ago, on the 25th of September, that was the day I got canned in less than two months. Uh, Thanks to you and the help of an incredible team of about 25 people, we got RyanJesperson.com online. We got Real Talk on the air. But most importantly, it's because of you. I wanted to read this tweet from one of our big supporters, Chris Labos here. He, He owns Local Waste. And he said this to us yesterday. He said, you know, when you have a small glitch, never forget, first, your audience doesn't care but also that you're competing with and beating a dinosaur industry with hundreds of millions of dollars worth of infrastructure and impaired goodwill on their balance sheets. And that message excited me because it made me realize that, yeah, maybe we've had a few hiccups. We know that some of our guest audio hasn't been great and we're working on that. We could probably improve some of the technical angles of this and those will improve over time. But when it comes down to it, we are making a commitment to you to participate in real, meaningful, fearless, impactful conversations each and every weekday starting at 8.30 Mountain Time. And we're grateful to have you supporting us by subscribing to our podcast, by rating it and leaving a comment and telling your friends about this, by subscribing to our YouTube channel, ringing the bell, and even by considering making a monthly contribution to our Patreon. And you can learn more about that on our website at ryanjesperson.com. We're thrilled to have had you here with us in week one of Real Talk. We wish you the best weekend, and we'll talk to you again live at 8.30 on Monday morning.